In late 1911, English explorer Robert Falcon Scott sought to reach the South Pole. Very pleasant day for marching, but a very tiring march for the poor animals, which with the exception of Nobby, are showing signs of failure all round. We were slower by half an hour or more than yesterday, except that the loads are light now and there are still eight animals left. Things don't look too pleasant, but we should be less than 60 miles from our first point of aim. Aside from being a personal triumph, from a broader perspective, the aim was for a human being to reach the South Pole for the first time. Scott and humanity achieved their goals, but not in the manner Scott had hoped. In this episode, I speak with Lizzie Mee, Program Manager for Artifacts at the New Zealand-based Antarctic Heritage Trust. A frequent visitor to the southernmost continent, Lizzie explains the story of Scott's fateful trek as told through the bountiful artifacts she and her team have helped to preserve. The only continent in the world where the first structures put up by humans still exist and you're transported to a place and time that's hugely evocative. The famous expedition to the North Pole wasn't Scott's first visit to the region. In fact, he'd conducted an earlier expedition between 1901 and 1904. He realised establishing a base camp, a kind of home away from home, where his men could live and work before embarking on the final trek, was a key element of the expedition. The hut is becoming the most comfortable dwelling place imaginable. We have made ourselves a truly seductive home, within the walls of which peace, quiet and comfort remain supreme. Such a noble dwelling transcends the word hut, and we pause to give it a more fitting title only from lack of the appropriate suggestion. Lizzie, I was wondering if, after Scott's first expedition to the Antarctic, with the establishing of this base camp, were there lessons that he learnt in terms of what worked, what didn't work in this, you know, obviously unfamiliar, very hostile environment that impacted how they approached the second expedition? I think the key thing that they learned was to make their design Antarctic-specific. So the, the original Discovery Hut kitset construction was not designed specifically for Antarctica. It was an Australian kitset. It had a wide veranda, and, and when you look at it, it seems perfectly suited to hot, dry, sunny conditions. So Scott came back home and put a lot of thought into the design of the Cape Evans Hut, and some of the things that that covers are simply the size of it and the way that it's divided up into both work and living areas. So there's a, enough space for everyone to both have a, a comfortable sleeping space, but also to carry out the scientific work that they were tasked with. He had a division between the officers and men so that uh, they could carry on the, the Navy tradition of separating the rated from the unrated personnel. And he learned quite a lot about the weather, the conditions in Antarctica, the sorts of things they would need to keep themselves comfortable. So we're talking about having insulation in the walls, having a construction that meant it was able to be constructed literally directly on the ground rather than trying to force foundation piles into rock-solid permafrost, having at least two heating stoves. In fact, they ended up with three because they had one in the stables as well. Understanding that you would have to melt ice to make water constantly. And just having, I guess, adaptable spaces, knowing that you would end up having to do all kinds of things within the building, whether it was mending gear or putting on entertainments or dealing with animals, whether they were, you know, in the stables or perhaps unwell. Even with uh, prefabricated sections, I should imagine this wasn't just like building something from Ikea. 
You know, factoring the weather, for one thing, how difficult was it actually to build the structure? The crucial thing that they did was to do a trial erection. In, in the case of Terra Nova Hut, they did that in Littleton in New Zealand before they went to the ice. So they had a dry run, as you might say, to put the building up and discover what was missing, what went together well, what needed some modification. doesn't matter how much planning you do off ice. This is my experience as well. You always find when you get to Antarctica that you need to have a range of materials and tools on hand to be able to adapt or to correct things that perhaps haven't gone quite to plan. Basically, they put the heart up in about 10 days, and then they got each of the officers to create their own bunk spaces, which is quite a nice touch. They got to build their own furniture. But there were a few adaptations made as they went along, and in particular in subsequent seasons, you know, when they added on the Western Annex for extra storage space, for example, and when they modified the stables to have a more solid set of walls and ceiling. You mentioned the modifications that they made to the stables and so forth. Had they underestimated the need for insulation or were these changes just kind of improvised improvements rather than, you know, being due to planning flaws? Initially, the plan to use the huge number of fodder bales and compressed coal that they had on hand to make walls for the stables made a huge amount of sense. And why wouldn't you do it that way? But when the supply ship came down the following year and that happened to have a whole lot of timber as dunnage, equally it would have made sense to make a better covered in space. And I think all of us who've worked in Antarctica recognise the value of really solid stormproof internal space for storing gear and looking after things when you've got the capacity to build something then that's what you do because having things which are temporary just end up causing you problems you know they leak snow or they're not as warm and my guess is that's what went through their minds one of the interesting things i read on the antarctic heritage website was that scott's crew had sufficient food and supplies for a year i know they were attempting to reach the pole during what was summer in the southern hemisphere So was there a risk that if they didn't complete the mission in time, they could just get stuck there due to the weather? And so the extra food was in case they had to hank down for a winter season. This is something that Scott learned directly from the Discovery Expedition because he was able to get to Hut Point in a year where the ice conditions allowed the ship to do so. But the following year, the ship was frozen in into Winter Quarters Bay. This is really common in that area. It's more often than not frozen in at that time of year. And so his ship was stuck and they were unable to leave. And then when the supply ships came back the first time around, they weren't able to get them out. So they they knew from the Discovery Expedition that there was a really good chance of being stranded if the ice conditions didn't let them leave my ship. So they had extra food with them. But I also think that by the time the Antarctic Expeditions happened, there was a long history of seagoing voyages where you took extra supplies in case of whatever happened. And I think it was just probably a default way of planning for an expedition. Scott's surplus food supplies went unused, not because of the success of his expedition, but because of its tragic conclusion. After a multitude of problems, including nearly capsizing on the journey from New Zealand to enduring much harsher weather than expected, Scott also found himself in a race against time. Norwegian explorer Raud Amundsen was making his own attempt to reach the pole. As Scott's men neared their destination, they made a devastating discovery, as he recorded in his diary. The worst has happened, or nearly the worst. We marched on, found that it was a black flag tied to a sledge bearer, nearby the remains of a camp, sledge tracks and ski tracks going and coming, and the clear trace of dogs' paws, many dogs. 
This told us the whole story. The Norwegians have forestalled us and are first at the pole. It is a terrible disappointment. Despite the setback, Scott continued his journey. Having come so far, why not finish the job? It's also important to remember that in this age of empire and martial glory, as he recorded in his diary, he had pride in proving that an Englishman could endure such extreme conditions and make the king and country proud. But when the team did reach the pole, they had similar feelings to Amundsen, who while proud of his accomplishment, said of the environment, the devil can keep it. In his diary, Scott described his feelings at the time. Great God, this is an awful place, and terrible enough for us to have laboured to it without the reward of priority. Now for the run home and a desperate struggle. I wonder if we can do it. His fears for the journey back to the base camp tragically proved to be well-founded. Overwhelmed by frigid cold, snowpack and difficult terrain, one by one the men perished on the journey back. Scott's last diary entry, recorded when the team were just 11 miles from safety, reflects his realisation that the end was near. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. For God's sake, look after our people. The men's bodies were discovered months later. It's probably a detail that lots of people might not be aware of, but the men who died on Scott's expedition, Scott, of course, being one of them, this was a huge moment for their colleagues. It was a terrible period of time they had to wait, knowing that they were probably out there. And then eventually they had to pack up their personal belongings and send them back to their families in England. So in the hut, there was almost nothing left behind of the men who actually died on the expedition because it was probably regarded as so precious and belonging to the families that it had to be all gathered and packed and sent home. Other aspect of the buildings, which I think is very poignant at Cape Evans, is because it was inhabited by the Ross Sea Party, who were there under some pretty tough circumstances with very limited supplies, as you know. They were burning blubber to keep warm. The walls were covered in soot. They were forced to hand make and modify clothing and wear it covered in blubber. It was pretty miserable. And there's various aspects of what's left behind and the way the building is, which speak to a kind of life of difficulty and deprivation, which I think carries a poignancy of its own, which is quite separate to the whole Scott expedition and the deaths of the five men on the Southwood March. I've read that people subsequently came to the camp in later years and found food items in good order in the hut. Was that by design? I mean, thinking of storage methods in that era, you would have had things like canned goods, for example. Had they deliberately tried to store things in a way that they would be durable, you know, because obviously this was a time before we had refrigerators? Or was it just because of the cold environment that things lasted longer? Were the people who later came entering that hut, would they have been surprised to find that this food was still in good order? I don't think anyone on the subsequent Antarctic expeditions, the heroic era ones, would have been particularly surprised to find stuff in good order because back then the way that people preserved food in glass jars or ceramic 
containers or in tins was uh, quite high quality, especially in comparison with today. You know, the thickness of the metal, for example, in the cans and the seals that they were able to get around some of the food. And then if you combine that with the fact that it's been sitting in the cold and dark for all that time, that's a really good um, preservation mechanism. Most of these objects were in the dark, either in a box or in a dark hut. I do think it's been a surprise to some of my conservators who have occasionally come across a, you know, these jars of material and they look like they could be edible today almost, especially the dried foods. But of course, nearly 120 years later, a lot of the, the cans are severely deteriorated by now. On the Antarctic Heritage website, I've seen some pictures of items that look very familiar. For example, cans of golden syrup, which looks basically identical to the cans they manufacture today. And they look in excellent condition. So when you visit the hut, does it feel like you've just travelled through a time portal into an Edwardian building? Oh, completely. What I've noticed about people who visit the hut and their reactions to the site is the period of time between then and now is still quite relatable to us. You're looking at objects which you can either recognise because some of the brands are still going today or the types of materials or containers are still quite similar or they're things that you're perhaps your parents or your grandparents had or talked about. But in particular, there's quite a lot of British products like the fries, chocolate and cocoa, for example, and Huntley and Palmer's biscuits. Some of those companies are still using very similar branding than they were back in the heroic era. So that makes them quite recognisable to people as well. The thing I find the most surprising is perhaps how similar it is to our field expeditions today, so that to understand that they lived quite a lot on bread and crackers and cheese for lunch or for snacks. They had chocolate and that was highly valued. All the things that are sort of high fat, high calorie, good for working in the cold environment, pretty similar then as they are now. And I suppose I thought they would mostly be living on tin stew and potatoes or something like that. And of course, they did have things like that too, but there were probably more similarities today than you would think. Now, being British, they placed a, a great importance on puddings. The chef's job to make steamed puddings with custard. And there's a lot of bottled fruit, so they could provide that sort of treat. Probably some of the more surprising items, perhaps because they're luxuries, we only know about those because of the, the lists of food they took south. So things like champagne or pheasant in a tin or creme de menthe, things like that. You know, they're, they're long gone. There's none of that left at the huts now. I focused this episode on Scott because he and his heart are probably the best known, but the Antarctic Heritage Trust also preserves other sites. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so the Antarctic Heritage Trust is a charity that was set up in 1987 by the New Zealand government, and the remit for us was to take over the conservation care and management of the historic huts of the Ross Sea region. So that encompasses four different expedition-based sites in the Rossi region that relate to the heroic era and one site which relates to um, a later period, 1957. That's a base that is from New Zealand's earliest scientific activities in the region associated with Sir Edmund Hillary and the International Geophysical Year. To go back to the heroic era, so there's four sites that we look after. They are protected under the Antarctic Treaty System and as such, that's the highest level of protection that the treaty system provides. And as such, all activities in and around them require specific permits, including the work that we do. And that permit is given by the New Zealand government on a case-by-case basis. 
So the four sites range in age from 1900, the site at Cape Adair relating to Karsten Borschkevink that was constructed by him for his one year on ice expedition there. And then Scott's Discovery Hut, which is 1902 at Hut Point. Shackleton's Nimrod Hut, which is 1907, and that's at Cape Broids. And then lastly, Terra Nova Hut at Cape Evans, which was constructed on the beach there in 1911. Scott and his team obviously only took the essentials on their final trek. So does the hut have a bit of a feel like the Maori Celeste? In terms of you kind of feel a connection with these men who tragically died, but a lot of their goods and things are there because they're expecting to come back. Definitely. And, you know, we've had teams of conservators working on these objects over a 10-year period, and they frequently would highlight to me and, and our colleagues items that they'd unpacked or discovered as they were doing the treatment to be really interesting for one reason or another. And I think almost universally, some of the most interesting material are the personal items to the men. So often pieces of clothing that have been modified by them to be more useful in Antarctica. And that's things like woolen jumpers with big pockets on the front where you could stuff your mittens or little side pockets where you could put your pipe and your tobacco. And then especially when there's a name tag on the item of clothing that links it to one of the team members, that really makes that personal connection and makes you think about how they were living, what they did to make their lives as practical and comfortable as possible, and what their personalities were to some extent. One thing I found interesting was the American group decades ago who visited the site said that metallic items like shovels that were left outside seem to be perfectly preserved, whereas items inside the hut were covered in rust and deteriorated. And it was suggested maybe the humid environment inside accelerated decay, whereas the frigid air outside prevented it. But I've read that your group's continuing conservation efforts suggest otherwise. The site at Cape Evans has got a large number of objects which have got metal components and it's a heavily saline environment. It's right next to the ocean. And what that means is that when you get windblown snow around the area, it often has a very, very high salt content and that interacts poorly with most of the metal components on the site. Over the years, just about all metals have suffered some degree of corrosion except for the ones which are naturally more resilient. The way that the corrosion presents itself, it's obvious that a lot of it is driven by that salt content that's worked its way into the metal structure. Before we started the conservation project in 2004, the state of a lot of the metals that were inside the building hadn't been given a conservation treatment ever and was covered in quite a lot of weeping corrosion, clear evidence of salt-affected corrosion there. And post-treatment, of course, that metal's looking a lot better, doesn't carry those signs anymore. The metal that sits outside the building will have gone through a lot of the same corrosion mechanisms. However, the wind and ice crystals and local scoria dust crystals, they basically they sandblast the metal surface so that any corrosion that's or weeping corrosion that's sitting on the surface gets scoured off during the storms. And so it presents you with a much smoother, more even looking metal that to the casual eye appears to be more stable than what you might see inside the building. Looking at pictures of the hut now, it looks in immaculate condition. What state was it in in the 1950s when that US team first rediscovered it? As you said, the first visitors to the site were from the US Navy and they gained access to a small part of the hut. Actually, they got into the galley area 
by coming in through one of the small windows above the stables. And that window was probably where the snow and ice was getting in through. And over the decades, it had filled up the majority of the hut and then that had solidified to ice. So they were only able to see a small amount of the rim that was not covered in ice. You know, this is one of the reasons why we work so hard to look after the buildings, because it only takes a small gap, the snow and ice, to start to work their way in as spin drift. And once snow settles somewhere and over the time compacts down into ice, it becomes this very solid layer that can cause a lot of damage, very difficult to remove. But yeah, it doesn't take much to fill a space up with snow if there's a way for it to get in. With your conservation efforts, and I'm thinking here in terms of snowdrift, snowstorms, strong winds and so forth, is it an ongoing process where you're constantly having to do repairs? Or do you reach kind of a plateau where you can say, okay, this building's good to go now, we really don't have to worry about fixing it up again? It's fair to say Antarctica is a pretty harsh environment. So the way I would describe the ongoing care and maintenance of these buildings is that they benefit from a regular annual maintenance and monitoring visit and there's always something relatively minor to repair or conserve during those visits and by keeping on top of those smaller items we prevent a return to that downward drift and deterioration overall. However, periodically the buildings also require more major interventions and that's because Building materials and repairs typically have a lifespan and typically will need to be replaced. A lot of the original material is still in incredible condition and we don't anticipate having to replace that necessarily. But things like roofing material or weatherproofing seals around doors, those sorts of things which we might have added in order to protect as much of historic material as possible um, both inside and outside the hut, those things might need renewal uh, every 30 years or so. For obvious reasons, Antarctica isn't a huge tourist destination. But for scientists or travellers on cruise ships in the region, are these huts accessible to visitors and tourists? The Ross Sea region does attract a small number of vessels which are there for tourism purposes, much smaller number than you see over on the peninsula. And there are also a number of scientific bases operating in the McMurdo Sound region. So The historic sites that we manage tend to attract somewhere between 400 to 2,000 visitors per year to each site, depending. So Cape Adair is very remote and difficult to access, so that would be at the lower end of the scale. And then something like Discovery Hut, which happens to be within walking distance of McMurdo Station and New Zealand's Scott Base, has far more visitors for obvious reasons. And we don't control access to the sites. As I said, they're an Antarctic specially protected area, so groups or organisations or other nations wishing to access the sites apply for permits to do so, and that is managed through each country's national permitting authority. I know there was debate in the past about possibly moving the huts and the relics to a more accessible museum or location, but ultimately it was decided to leave them where they are. Was that just a matter of prioritising integrity of the site over making them accessible to people who want to learn about it? They are difficult to access, but one of the things that the Trust is working on is finding ways to allow people to access them through other means, often through the digital world. And one of the things we've done recently is create a virtual reality experience for the Transantarctic Expedition Hut at Scott Base, and we hope to do the same for the other buildings in the future. So that's quite exciting. 
But just generally, I suppose, in terms of human history, they're very complex and interesting sites. There's a lot to be uncovered about them. The work that we do to look after them on behalf of the international community, it's done with the intent that other people are then able to delve into that history and make connections and grow to understand more about, I guess, what is the only continent in the world where the first structures put up by humans still exist. So if you think about other places in the world, that's completely unique. And the timeline of our first interactions with Antarctica to now is very short. And we're still connected with the early expeditions through the baseline science they carried out uh, and some of the experiments that are happening today. And so the sites are just this kind of fascinating touch point, I suppose, for human connection to Antarctica. The way that I've seen people connect with them when they go into the buildings is many of them scientists who've been studying related topics to Scott and his crew. It's quite an extraordinary, powerful experience to walk into. And there's no glass, there's no barriers between you and the objects or the building. And you're transported to a place and time. It's hugely evocative. It isn't exactly as they left it because there's too much change that has happened. But as much as is possible, it gives you the sense of life in Antarctica at that time. Thanks, Lizzie. It's been a fascinating topic. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. And if anyone listening wants to learn more about this, if you go to nzaht.org, the website of the Antarctic Heritage Trust, you can see all kinds of photos, plans, documents. There's a whole plethora of information that would take months worth of podcast episodes to cover. So check it out. It's really amazing stuff. And in the next episode... I speak with attorney Jason Wright, the man tasked with representing 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at Guantanamo Bay. Hold up. 